Good to see you. Welcome again to Wednesday Night Fellowship. Hey, Max. If you're just joining us, we are in the home stretch of our series, uh, Roots and Relationships. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he has come to give us life and life to the fullest. And in the story of the sower, he lays out some of what the key ingredients of that good life are. One, we need God's word, right? the seed, the word of God to get into our hearts. We need rest. We need roots. We need relationships. And if and when these things are in place, a new kind of life is going to emerge, full of good fruit, fruit that will not only prove that something eternal is growing within us, but is also going to enable those around us to taste and see that God is good too. The fruit that grows out of this good, uh, out of this good soil will have a different flavor than some of the other fruits that are growing in the culture around you. You're going to be able to taste and see a difference. Uh, those Differences will be tasted and seen across a variety of things, such as the ways that you relate to your identity, to your work and rest, money and possessions, sex and suffering and conflict, and so on. I'm not a bio major. I've got a few science-y sort of illustrations tonight. Not a bio major, but I think this is true, right? That all of the DNA of a plant or a tree is contained in its seed, right? Everything that that tree is to become is all crammed in that seed, right? The, the mighty oak that you might walk past on on campus, right? It starts off, all that DNA of the oak is contained in the acorn. If you're out in California, you happen to go to that Taco Bell that Sarah Jane likes so much, you'll see some redwood trees, right? Some sequoias, like all of those, the, the giant sequoia, it all is contained inside like a tiny pine cone. Well, there's a life that Jesus wants to grow in you. And the DNA of that life is all contained in a seed. It's all contained in the seed of God's word. And tonight I want to kick things off with a very brief overview of what that seed, that word of God, has to say about our bodies, yours and mine. To do that, let's turn to page one of the Bible and then page two. Or you can simply look at the scripture passages that are printed there for you on the handout. The first passage I want to look at with you comes from page one of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 27. I'll read it again. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want to make three quick observations from this one verse. Number one, men and women are made in the image of God. That's obvious. You can see that right there in the text. As Old Testament scholars have pointed out, humans are to be in the world as a kind of living image or statue of God. We are God's idols. Visible representations of God here on earth. Observation number one. Observation number two. Imaging God is not something that we are. It's also something that we do. We are living images made to make visible and invisible God. And one of the ways that we do that, say one of the ways that we make visible this invisible God, is with our bodies. This is not just something that men do with their bodies, and it's not just something women do with theirs, but it's something that every human person does. Right? We image God in part right, with our bodies. Final observation. This passage, Genesis 1.27, is found in the context of the creation week where God has made all things and he's declared them good. Four verses later, Genesis 1.31, we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. On page one of the Bible, God affirms the goodness of all of creation, which includes the human body. And this is not just a message that we find at the beginning of the Bible, but it is a message that sort of carries throughout. 
from beginning to middle and end. One of the most remarkable affirmations of the Bible, uh, from the Bible about the goodness of the human body comes in the middle, where we see the, the word of God, right? Take on human flesh and become a human being. Right? He takes on a human body and he lives amongst us. John 1, which echoes Genesis 1, tells that story well. Not only did God take on a body in the incarnation of Jesus, he has a body still. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, right, with a renewed resurrection body, is perhaps the most definitive statement about the goodness of the human body. Not only does Jesus have a resurrected body, but so too will all who have put their faith and trust in him. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, declares that history is heading towards a resurrected bodily existence in a very real and corporal new heavens and new earth. Right From beginning to middle to end, the Bible says that the body is good, affirms its goodness. These are just a couple of observations we can call sort of from this one verse and from page one of the Bible. But turning to page two in Genesis two, we read some, some other things as well. Here's verses 5, 6, and 7. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He became a person. Again, some quick observations from this text. There are, in God's sort of creation, purely spiritual beings. God's a a spiritual being. He makes other spiritual beings, angels being one. Angels that rebel, called demons. These are spiritual beings. We're not in that category. We're not purely spiritual beings. Also in God's creation are purely physical things, such as rocks and trees. We're not that either, right? Human beings are physical, spiritual beings. We're made of the dust of the the earth, right? We're physical, but we also have a spirit within us, too. You could say that we are spirited dust, or if you prefer, we are embodied souls. A coin has two sides on it, and we have sort of two sides or dimensions to us as well. We have a physical side, a body, and we have a non-physical side, which we can call a soul. But it's really important that you don't treat these two sides as separate things. So maybe instead of a coin with two sides, maybe it's better for you you to think of a person as sort of a chemical compound like salt. I I ran this one by Steve and and Amber before this this right now. So if this illustration's off, I'm I'm throwing you all under the bus. (laughs) All right. Well, I asked, yeah, the computer science, I forgot. Um, salt is a one-to-one ratio of sodium and chloride. If all you have is sodium, that's not salt. If all you have is chloride, that's not salt. But you take these two things, you take sodium and chloride together, you get this new thing that's called salt. If you take away the body, you don't have a person. If you take away the soul, you don't have a person. When you have the two together, right, you do. You've got this new thing called a human person, a human being. Essentially, we are made up in such a way, right, that what we do with our bodies affects our souls, and what we do with our souls affects our bodies. 
For example, invisible stress is gonna, that's in our spirit, it's going to show up in our body as like ulcers or things like that. Eating nothing but junk food is then going to show up in our spirits as sort of malaise or depression. Right? The technical term for this is psychosomatic unity. What we do with our bodies, what we do with our souls, they, infect, or they, they impact each other. Our bodies and souls are deeply united. And it is profoundly destructive when we try to separate those two things. When we try to divorce body from soul. It's destructive because we are psychosomatic unity. What the Bible says is true of all of us, that we are embodied souls, a psychosomatic unity made in the image of God. Right? This has profound implications for the ways that we live in the world. It informs the ways that we think about human life from the womb to the tomb and everything in between. Right? The ways that we conceive of the human person, right? it, it speaks to hot topics like abortion and euthanasia and sexuality. I'm not going to talk about all of those things tonight, but I do want to zero in on simply one of those topics tonight, which is the topic of sex and sexuality. Our culture communicates to us through all sorts of messaging that who you are, who I am, right, who we are, is largely the product of our choices and desires and actions. And one of the biggest choices that you can make in this life is, in this life is will I have sex and with whom? Now, culturally, your answer to these questions is the most important and interesting thing about you. Our culture idolizes sex to the point where sexuality becomes the thing that defines you. In the words of Woody Allen, I don't know the question, but sex is definitely the answer. God sees things a little differently, or a lot differently. Sex and sexuality are important things. It's a weighty, tender thing, and we need to talk about these things. But sex and sexuality are not the most important things about you. And they're certainly not the most interesting. The most important, interesting thing about you is that you are made and loved by God. That you are stamped with his divine image. That you are someone that Christ, loved, that, that Christ lived and died for. And someone he longs to save. That's the most important and interesting thing about you. right? Your sex and sexuality informs how you navigate relationships this side of heaven, but it does not define who you are. I'm going to say that again. Your sex, your sexuality, it informs how you navigate relationships this side of heaven, but it does not define who you are. All right, we need to put sex in its place. Sex is good, but it is not essential. And similarly, marriage is good, but it is not essential. What is essential is friendship. What is essential and non-negotiable is the church. Right? You can live a fully human existence without sex and without marriage, but you cannot live a fully human existence without friendship and the church. And the reason this is so, it harkens back to what we read in Genesis 1. You are made in the image of God. 
And not just any God, but a triune God who says, let us make mankind in our image. You are made in the image of God who's always existed in loving community. God the Father loving God the Son and God the Spirit sharing in that love. At the very center of reality is a community full of intimacy and love. And because you're made in the image of a God like this, it follows that you are created for intimate relationships too. You are made and you are saved to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, and not just by God, but by other image bearers as well. Which means there is no such thing as the good life, life as it was meant to be lived, life to the full, without intimacy. But here's the deal. Intimacy is not the same thing as nakedness. And what's more, vulnerability, which is a key component of intimacy, is not the same thing as sex. There are plenty of people who know how to take their clothes off, but they have no idea how to meaningfully connect with another human being. And conversely, there are those who will never marry and who will never have sex, but who are living intimate, vulnerable lives, and they are experiencing a depth of love and friendship that you and I are longing for. I have friends who, for some reason or another, will never marry and they will never have sex. Now, while never marrying or never having sex might grieve them at times, these friends would also say that they have friends than most people, they have more friends than most people, and the depths of these friendships is profound. They'd also tell you how much they feel known and loved by Jesus. And because of these things, the depths of their friendship, not to mention the depths of Jesus' love, these single, celibate friends are some of the least lonely, most loved persons on the planet. And frankly, I think Jesus himself would describe himself that way. The least lonely, most loved person on the planet. And mind you, he, like they, never married, never had sex. Now, my point of this talk is not to knock either of these things, right? Sex and marriage are good gifts from a good God, but we do need some perspective. Sex and marriage, while good, are also non-essential to living the good life, a fully human life, a Jesus-shaped life. One of my goals tonight is to put sex in its place. I want to take sex off the pedestal that our culture has put it on, saying it's the most important and most interesting thing about you, and I want to remind you tonight that it's not. But I want to put sex in its place in another sense as well. If you've been to my house, you know in my living room there's a fireplace. Now that fire in the fireplace is good and beautiful, and it brings warmth to the house. Fire in the fireplace, good. Fire outside that fireplace, not so good. Right? Fire outside the fireplace burns the house down. And sex is like that. In its proper place, sex is this good, beautiful thing that brings life and light to those around it. But outside of that context, it can be ugly and painful and destructive. Sex belongs in the proverbial fireplace. And from Jesus' perspective, that fireplace is marriage. There are several reasons for this. 
But tonight, I'm simply going to mention one. Okay? I'll just tell you one reason why sex belongs in the fireplace of marriage. One of the reasons why sex belongs in the fireplace of marriage is because sex is a powerful form of communication. What sex communicates is all that I am and all that I have belongs to you. I'm not holding anything back. It sounds graphic, but like I'm all in. That statement makes perfect sense in the context of a married relationship where two people have made a covenant to one another and they've declared, I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you. In that context, the body language of sex, I'm all in, I've got nothing to hide, everything I have is yours. In that context, that language makes perfect sense. But that makes no sense outside of it. See, when you have sex outside of marriage, you're saying something with your bodies that doesn't line up with the facts. You're saying that you are united on all levels when in reality you're not. Which means you're not telling the truth. And there is no relationship on earth that is enhanced by lies. It just isn't. Now you might try to convince yourself that sex doesn't communicate this. That sex is essentially mute. That sex says nothing and that sex means nothing. But your body knows better. Right? Your body is keeping score. Ladies, like when you have sex, your body releases oxytocin, which is the same chemical that is released when mothers nurse their babies. Oxytocin is often called the attachment hormone. The point is, even if you think that you're having a no-strings-attached hookup, you are in reality creating a very powerful chemical bond with another person, whether you mean to or not. It's irrelevant. Your body is keeping score. And the same goes for you guys. right? Men, when you have sex, your bodies release a neurochemical called vasopressin, which is similar to oxytocin. Vasopressin has been dubbed the monogamy molecule. Noting the profound interconnection between body and soul, Miriam Grossman, who's a psychiatrist at UCLA, she observes, you might say that we are designed to bond, which is exactly what the Bible has been saying all along. But our culture rejects this. It wants to divorce sex from marriage, and it wants to divide and divorce the body from the soul. In hookup culture, sex is reduced merely uh, to, a, uh, to a merely physical act. It's a piece of body touching another piece of body, as one person put it for a Rolling Stones story. Right? Sex is essentially or existentially meaningless. It's on the same order as eating a burger. Like if you're hungry, you go to eat. If you're horny, you smash. All right, you're not falling asleep. You're with me. <laughs> All right, good. Okay. Did I lose you? Are you with me? All right. In an episode of Hidden Brain, Shankar Vendantam and Lisa Wade, they talked to college students and discussed the effects of hookup culture and, and the effect it's having on college students. Students say, and, and look, I know, I'm, I'm a 40-year-old man, like, hookup culture was alive and well when I was a college student, too. So, like, I'm, this, this hits close to, like, I understand what this is about. 
Students say that the number one rule of hookup, uh, uh, the number one rule of hookup culture is don't get attached. Right? The script is you're supposed to be able to walk away from this experience as if it did not happen. Right? Says one student, you learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable. Now, of course, this takes some work, and it goes against your design, like it, it goes against your body. So to make this dissociation easier, most, most students turn to alcohol. Right? Sober sex is serious sex, but sex is supposed to be meaningless. So the students say, make sure to be drunk or to appear to be drunk when hooking up. And just as an aside, nearly every story that I see on the Share Your Story UVM Instagram page involves alcohol abuse and intoxication. It is a glaring pattern. Just saying. But rule number two, make sure you don't hook up with the same person too many times. It's against the rules to say, I like you. Right? Even though you crave intimacy, don't let people know it. The last thing you want to be seen as is needy or desperate. Rule number three. After hooking up with someone, demote them. Ghost them. You have no obligation to care for that person in any way. Because it's meaningless. And you just have physical act. Now, summing up these rules, Lisa Wade explains, hookup culture demands carelessness, rewards callousness, and it punishes kindness. Demands carelessness, rewards callousness, and punishes kindness. Both men and women are free to have sex, she says, but not free to experience intimacy and human connection. A couple of weeks ago, there was a widely shared article from the Washington Post called Consent is Not Enough. We Need a New Sexual Ethic. In the article, author Christine Emba asks what a better sexual world might look like. One person says it would involve talking and listening. Another person simply said, care. Another person says, can we not just love each other for a single day? The answer given to Emba's question constitutes such a low bar of decency that reading these answers makes me want to cry. My heart breaks to hear what these men and women and what you are having to go through as you navigate relationships and this culture. Y'all, it doesn't have to be this way. As we talked about last week, the way that we see the world Right? The way that we view the world, it shapes how we live in it. If you have a good eye, if you see rightly your life and your light, it will be full of light. But if you see it wrongly, it's going to be full of darkness. Hookup culture doesn't just grow out of thin air. It is rooted in a godless view of the world and of human persons. And the end result, right, the fruit of that is a lot of hurt and hopelessness. People saying things like, and I quote, I have given up the dream of romance and intimacy. And I quote, I have simply stopped thinking that a relationship is even possible. 
Because beneath all the pageantry of casual sex and self-love is a lot of miserable people. As Christine Emba concludes in that article of hers, rather than expanding our happiness, the sexual liberation movement has shrunk it. Y'all, having given you a bigger picture, sort of like overview of this topic, I want to get a little personal. As some of you know, uh, I wasn't a Christian in college. I became a Christian later on around the age of 25, 26, which means up until that time, I was very much part of this hookup culture we've been describing. Right? I had a lot of hookups in college. Almost all of them involved alcohol. There was very little, if any, sober sex in my life. I had learned early on to disengage my soul from sex. But the more soulless sex that I had, the harder it became for me and others to touch that deepest, sort of most vulnerable parts of my life. With every hookup, it was like I was putting on a new layer of bricks that was cutting me off from myself and from other people. And I was doing this willingly. And when Jesus enters into my life around the age of 25... To sort of use this story of the sower, like when the sower shows up and he starts sort of sowing seeds of the gospel over my life in the hopes that some of it would get inside of my heart. At that, at that time, I was dating a girl in Nashville. We were messing around. We were hooking up. Right? She had her baggage uh, and I had mine. But as we were in this dating relationship, I was also starting to attend church. I was surrounded by a bunch of recent college grads, all of them Christians. And they were not like these Christians that I had met in high school. These Christians I was surrounded with were those, well, let me describe, the Christians I knew in high school were Christians who would go to church on Sunday, they would worship Jesus there, but they would sort of keep Jesus in this small sort of church-sized box. Worship him here, but he has nothing to do, he has nothing to say about my life sort of Monday to Saturday. The Christians that I was surrounded with, though, around the age of 25, they believe that if Jesus is Lord, he's got to be Lord of all. Like, let's be consistent. If he's Lord, he is, by definition, Lord of all. Right? They refuse to keep Jesus in a little box. If Jesus is Lord, he has a right to speak into every aspect of our lives. He has that right from the get-go because he created everything. He obviously knows how life works best. But when Jesus died to save me, he didn't just have the right to speak. He had the right to be heard. Right? He earned that right. When he died on a cross and proved like, hey, I love you. And as we all know, we never listen to people that we don't think care about us. We never listen to those who are like, we're not convinced. And our heart of hearts like, this person has my best interests at heart. He loves me. God had every right to tell me like, and speak to me about the way of the world, but now I'm listening because it's like, oh, he loves me. Which is to say that like, when Jesus is saying stuff like keep sex and marriage, it's, he's not saying that because he loves rules. He's saying this because he loves me and he wants what's good for me. And he knows what's best. And if I'm going to worship Jesus as Lord, which is the most basic Christian confession there is, then I need to begin to trust him with more and more parts of my life and not just sort of keep him in this little box. Like, let him be Lord of all and Lord of all that is within me. My identity, my work, my rest, 
my money, my possessions, and yes, my body and my sexuality too. Long story short, I became a Christian in 2008 at the age of 26. My relationship with this girl in Nashville, it ends, and I wind up going to seminary. Now, my motivations for going to seminary are simple. I just want to learn how to read the Bible well. I have no intentions of becoming a pastor. I have no intentions of doing RUF. I had no idea what it was. I had no intentions of dating anyone for a while. And there at seminary for about half a year, I enjoy my singlehood. I'm growing in my knowledge of God. I'm connecting with folks in a church. But about half a year later, I come home for Christmas and I go to a New Year's Eve party with some of those Christian friends I was telling you about. And it's there that I meet this beautiful girl who's like, as the mythology has it, was wearing a gold dress. She wasn't, but it seemed like she was, right? In the middle of this room, I introduce myself. It's Megan. She ends up becoming my wife. I didn't know that at the time, but that's where we first met. After meeting Megan at this New Year's Eve party, we start talking. And our, long, our dating relationship, it's long distance for a while. She's getting ready to move to Honduras, where she plans on working at a camp for two years. Now, in the summer of 2009, I go to Honduras and I spend a month with her. In Honduras, we're not living together. We're not sleeping together. We're just working in the camp together, getting to know each other as friends. Now, when there's a coup in in Honduras in 2009, Megan moves to Massachusetts, and we're still on the same page. Let's keep practicing getting to know each other with our words. Let's keep practicing telling the truth with our bodies. I live in my place on campus. She gets her own place in Salem. We commit to not having sex with each other unless, of course, we get married. Now, I'm not saying that was always easy. I'm not saying that we did this perfectly. But I can stand before you tonight and before God and say the first time that we had sex was on our wedding night. And I'm glad that's, I'm just glad that's the truth. I'm glad that's the case. Now, Megan was a virgin on on our wedding night. I asked her for permission. She's like, yeah, you can tell them that. She was a virgin on our wedding night. I obviously wasn't, right? She hadn't practiced divorcing body and soul during sex like I had. Which is to say, like, she doesn't have that baggage. She didn't bring that baggage into our marriage. I did. And that is baggage that I'm still having to work through and still needing to be healed of. And that's a work in progress. But I will tell you, healing is possible. I'm not where I was five years ago, and certainly not ten. You know, I don't think that you need to be married or to have sex to be healed of sexual brokenness. What I've always needed was friends who took the time to really know me and love me. I've always needed that. Megan has become a friend like that. But I also have friends who are not my wife who are that as well. And if there is a context for my healing, it is that. It's this. It's friendship that I experience inside and outside the church. I want you to know all of this about me. Because when I talk to you about sex... And I hope that we do. I hope that we can. Because it's important. When I talk to you about sex, I'm not speaking to you as a prude. And I'm not speaking to you as a perfect person. I have made a lot of mistakes in my life. 
And I've made mistakes in this area too. I have hurt other people. And I have been hurt by other people. But it is absolutely true that Jesus loved me enough to meet me where I was at in the midst of my brokenness. And it is absolutely true that Jesus loved me enough not to leave me there. And I want you to meet this same Jesus. I want you to know him even as you are known by him. I want you to love him even as you are loved by him. I want his words to get deep inside of your heart. I want you to be able to connect with him as you go about your day. And I long for you to not just know his love one-on-one, but in the context of community, where you can experience his love and the love of other image bearers too. I long this for you so badly. In telling you the story of mine, I also want you to know that it's never too late to turn around. My guess is that my guess is, is that almost everyone in this room has had sex before. Just statistically, that's true. But just because you've had sex before, it doesn't mean that you need to keep on having sex until your wedding day. You don't have to keep on hooking up. You don't have to keep telling lies with your body. You don't have to keep divorcing your body from your soul. Like, the good life, eternal living, it can begin today. Eternal living includes and incorporates today. I also want you to hear me when I tell you that there is no one who's too badly broken or too far gone. As someone wise once told me, you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and you're never so good that you're beyond the need of it. Jesus is a good shepherd who goes after lost sheep. He knows where to find you. He's addressing you tonight. He is going to meet you where you're at, and he will not leave you there. Dear friends, this is my last word I'll say to you tonight. I want you to know this. I want you to know that God is good. God is loving, and his goodness and his love are proved in the person of Jesus, who in his very human body lived for you, died for you, and was raised so that he could enjoy eternal life with you in me, right, forever. And it's with that in mind that I want to go to him in prayer. So join me now.